This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Lamigo. This week, Rebecca and I look back at some more of our favorite moments from the last 30 episodes. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 138. everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And this is Serverless Chats. Hey, Rebecca, back again. Hey, we are back again. Really excited for the second edition of this episode. But before we go anywhere, Jeremy, before we started recording, you said something like, well, we'll banter a little bit because we're pretty good at it. We're excellent at it. <laughs> and I would really, I hope that people will tweet at us to let us know on a rating scale of one to five. If we're either very, very good at it or excellent, and that's a scale of one to five. Right, correct. One is very, very good. Right. Five is excellent. So pick your poison, <laughs> no matter what we're going to come out on the upside. Right. Oh, or they could also be like, <laughs> you know, can you just make it so that you limit your banter to some uh, delineation of 30 seconds so I can just skip forward <laughs> until we get to the end of it and get to 15, the actual 15, meat 15. of the meat of the conversation. So anyways, well, so last time we talked, uh, we went back through a number of episodes from the last 30 episodes, and it was pretty pretty good, I think. I mean, the, the episodes that we went through are just amazing. Again, we have amazing guests. We talked about that last time. But we have another, what, six or seven episodes that we that we do want to kind of highlight here. But before we jump into that, maybe uh, we can get an update on your car, because last time you told us that your car was <clears throat> stolen. So any, any updates on that? Uh, indeed. Uh, well, no updates other than no. Uh, so Genevieve, or Jenny for short, or we called her the cheap mm. 1991 Jeep. Nice. You know, I, I don't think I can say this word. I'll, I'll change the B word to beach. But uh, she's, you know, apparently the police told me that she was stolen to do crimes, most likely. And I was like, oh, no, she's out doing crimes. And they're like, oh, yeah, she's she's doing crimes. And I was like, well, Jenny, a bad beach now. <laughs> uh, and Jenny has not returned. And I'm thinking that she has chosen a different path in life. Yeah, she's out there. She's got went and got a tattoo, maybe a nose ring. I Who knows? Know. I mean, just I know these kids. Today, Whoever's with her, I, I hope you. they're having a great time because that is a very special car. She's a special car. But thank you for asking. Um, I will let you know if uh, <laughs> if she returns. Yeah, keep us up to date. She might need an Instagram page or something like that so people can <laughs> yeah, follow along. Maybe. So, <laughs> well, so let's jump into this because I do want to get to the rest of these episodes today and uh, and not extend this to a third or a fourth best of. Maybe <laughs> later. Maybe we'll do that uh, in the fall. We'll we'll have another another recap of episodes. But when we left off last time, we listened to a clip from Werner Vogels. We listened to a clip from Tom McLaughlin from Simon Wardley, and, and we finished off with a discussion about security from Merritt Bear from our episode with Merritt Bear and Megan O'Neill. And it was all about, you know, hope is not a plan and that essentially, you know, security has to sort of be a thing that's part of your culture. And there's a really interesting conversation around culture there. So I look at this and I, I look at security and I think a lot of people look at security as maybe a burden, right? Something that is just, we keep using that word unsexy, which we probably shouldn't be saying that word, but you know, but that was the thing about security is that it really is this thing where it's just like, oh, it's something else to do. Uh, and that's also very true of operations and things like that, like just, you know, running patches on servers. So serverless takes away a lot of that. Serverless takes away a lot of the security concerns as well, right? Because that, that shared responsibility model really shrinks when you go to serverless. But there are still, I don't, I don't know if we want to call them burdens, but there's still responsibilities and things that we have to think about when it comes to serverless. Yeah, I think you're talking about like, whenever you make a decision, even if it's the right decision, there are trade-offs involved right. in that decision. And so you could say that the disadvantage or the trade-offs that you make that are on the quote-unquote negative side of, you know, what you're losing or the con to whatever that decision is, we might call them burdens, right? Or there are extra things that you now have to think about. And so in our episode number 108, Mulling Over Multicloud with Corey Quinn, we talk about the idea of the serverless pay-per-use billing model and whether or not it's a nightmare for procurement, for accounting departments, for the trade-offs that you are then making when you switch or move to that model and other teams or pieces of the org that might be affected. Anything you want to add before we dive into this clip with Corey Quinn? 
No, I think you set it up well. And I, I think the point or the question that was asked was this paper use model, which sounds great in theory. Is it uh, is that a nightmare for procurement departments? But also, is it something where that's just moving to be an acceptable practice? Cloud is a nightmare for a lot of those folks too, because there's a there's a giant misunderstanding in many respects that come that distills down to the cloudier that something is, and by which I mean the closer it gets to serverless versus a data center, the less expensive it becomes, but also the less predictable. There's mm. a baseline cost to service your first customer of a bunch of things that need to exist in your environment. And the additional cost beyond that is uh, distills down to a model of unit economics, something we saw during the pandemic in many shops that prided themselves on auto scaling, for example, saw 80% drop off in user traffic, but their bill remained largely intact at flatline. Or doing what AWS bills always do and so increasing with time because data doesn't delete itself. Great. Auto-scaling is more of an aspirational thing in some cases, and people use the term elasticity in cloud to mean, oh, I can scale up, and you need to scale up, because right. if not, you're dropping customer traffic on the ground. Scaling down has never really been a primary area of focus for companies, because at that point, it's just, it's just extra money, which I know sounds like it's facile, but it's not really. Losing customers and disappointing them is way more important than we spent a little bit too much on our infrastructure. So people don't emphasize the scale-down part of the story. Now, as we wind up seeing the whole serverless approach goes, there are benefits to procurement done right. Uh, Simon Wardley framed it once as tracing the flow of capital through your organization. For a long time, there, it was hard to find expensive Lambda bills. Uh, there was a blog post somewhat recently on the AWS Management and Governance blog on July 22nd, uh, how the Washington Post's ARC XP uses CloudWatch Metrics Explorer to reduce costs. And it talks about how the Washington Post had access into uh, the early beta of CloudWatch Metrics Explorer and how there was a internal proprietary algorithm that they used based upon a variety of different metrics that they then gather and then figure out how to handle provision concurrency and how much of that's being used and dynamically address it in real time. And AWS strongly talked about this as if they were indispensable at creating this. Yeah, the Washington Post is a reference client of ours. Who exactly do you think came up with a lot of those principles and ideas right. during the course of an engagement there? And the Washington Post team is great at this. They are phenomenal. They are further ahead down the serverless path in some of their workloads than most companies you'd talk to. And what's also interesting about this, and I want to be very clear, this is the sort of thing that people will read and think, oh, I need to absolutely implement something like this. And they'll go and do this and spend time on it. And I'll check their, I'll check their AWS bill, talk about these efforts. And they're spending 70 bucks a month on Lambda's function. And maybe that's not the thing you want to be building that advances you the state of your business. Let's admit it. The Washington Post is very clearly a scaled out company. They right. are doing a lot of neat stuff with serverless and they are clearly doing things that are interesting enough to be at the vanguard of what we're seeing as far as cost optimization goes in the world of serverless. They wouldn't have been featured in the AWS blog there otherwise, if they weren't. So I, I, there's so much there and actually so much sort of gold and clarity there. I think if you're thinking about you know, where you go from a cloud cost optimization standpoint and the idea that when you move to serverless and things, not only the fact that things become metered, but you're just, your utilization is so much lower, right? Because that scale up, scale down thing, that's something that a lot of people don't talk about. I remember you know, I had a conversation with Austin um, Collins who, who was very much so saying that at the beginning of the pandemic, that there was a rush for these companies to scale down. And that's something that that they saw, which I think was pretty, you know, pretty interesting. And so you cut your costs potentially dramatically by only utilizing a part of or only utilizing the, the compute and the resources that you need. And that's a good thing. But then when it comes to like cost optimization, you've got two things, the unpredictability of the bill, right? Because maybe one month it gets really high, maybe another month it's really low. And then you also have the fact that where you might be able to optimize, those bills are so low that, again, if you're spending $70 a month on Lambda function invocations, spending a month of an engineer's time who's making $150,000 a year, you know, to save you, what, $10, $20 a month is probably not a good use of your time. But ratio-wise... $10 <laughs> out of 70. I mean, let's right. just use that exactly. as a stat. <laughs> Saved 13, 14% or whatever it this is off of our bill. 13 to 14. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It costs us, it costs us like 
200,000% of their salary, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, in order to do it, but Jeremy. whatever, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, one of these trade-offs, right, in this decision is the trade-off of how important to you is predictability in your costing. And then, you know, if you're a small team, let's say you're a very small startup, you're a three, five, 10 people, and you basically kind of know who your customers are and what that's going to be. Maybe or but once you're a huge company and you're like, hey, we have so many different distributed teams, they're all building their own things. They are all like almost rolling into smaller accounting that goes up to larger accounting. There's just so much unpredictability there that it's something truly valuable to at least consider before you're trying to save $10 off of 70 Right, right. And, and I mean, and there's, again, there's more there too about, you know, things being metered. There's an interesting opportunity to trace that value mm -hmm. or the cost all the way through. And, and again, he mentions Simon Wardley, who we, you know, we played a clip from him last week. But there's a, there is an interesting thing there where it says like, look, you could actually meter and say this particular customer is using, we're not, maybe we're not multi-tenant, right? So you're using, you're using Lambda functions to just in, invoke for this particular customer or API gateway and, and these other things. And maybe they've got their own DynamoDB table and whatever. So all of those costs become really transparent, assuming you tag everything correctly, but all those costs become really transparent. And you could actually say, oh, well, this particular customer is costing me X amount of dollars. You could also do that on a per service basis where you could say this particular, you know, microservice that we're running costs us this amount of money and even maybe break that down by customers and utilization. So there's a lot of really interesting things you can do there. The question is, is it worth it, right? Like, do you spend the yeah. time to do that and, and add all of that, that extra capability? Because does it, does it really matter, especially if we're talking about, you know, fractions of a fraction of a fraction of a cent sometimes when a, a request comes in, right? Like, is it is it worth it to sort of track that stuff? Yeah, I guess it's sort of like, you know, take a step back and not like, can we overturn every rock? But it's what are the big rocks? And then what are the little rocks? And what are the pebbles? And then let's decide, can we go after that big rock? And then if we find that big rock, you know, where do we find the value and cost trade-offs there? Not necessarily being like, we're going to turn over a thousand pebbles. I mean, if we all, I think we all know if you want to hear very strong opinions, ask Corey Quinn anything. Right. <laughs> but I do think he brought up a very interesting nuanced point. It's not, and obviously we love serverless, so I'm not saying like, don't do serverless because it might have unpredictable costs at all. But it is a very good reminder that just because something works very well or might solve something by 15%, it's not necessarily always the 15% you want to solve for. And so it's just another thing. It's just like anything else, any other technology you use, you want to be considerate about when you deploy it, why you're deploying it, what it's solving, how you're spending your time, et cetera. Right, right. Yeah. And I think the other thing when it comes to trade-offs is this idea that even choosing a cloud is a, is a trade-off, right? And so Amazon, AWS, you and I, obviously a lot of experience with, with AWS. Mm -hmm. It's an ecosystem that I, as a developer, are very comfortable with because I know a lot of the services that are there and so forth. But it was platform week at Cloudflare. They launched D1, which is a distributed, you know, SQL server that runs at the edge, essentially. They have R2 that went into open beta, which is free egress for which you don't get at AWS, right? I mean, so they're they've got you know page plugin or pages plugins and and you know workers and that run for fifteen minutes and all these other things that they're doing now that are not necessarily putting them on par with AWS, but it certainly is getting them close. And it's going to make a lot of people who are already saying like, well, we're already using workers and Cloudflare as a CDN in front of our AWS workloads because it's a little bit better, right, when it comes to that type of use case. But we still want to run all of our stuff in AWS for this and whatever. But then Zeta is a new serverless database that looks pretty interesting. Or maybe Fauna, right? Or, you know, we really like this other service that does XYZ and we want to use that. So now you you run into this complexity of multi-cloud being a thing, right? So we just talked about multi-cloud. But I, I think multi-cloud in the sense of cloud agnostic is not what people mean by multi-cloud. And it sure, certainly shouldn't be. Like you're not trying to run your workload, in, the same workload in multiple clouds. Maybe for certain redundancy and if you're some, you know, if you're providing some service that just can't go down. But if you're checking your Facebook feed, like you probably, you know, don't need to run that in multiple clouds. But you might be using several providers and those providers might run in different clouds and all kinds of things like that. So the question comes is how do you manage that complexity? 
And right now, you've got a few services like Terraform. You've got Pulumi that I think is, you know, can do cross-cloud things and a couple others. But really, when you are choosing what cloud to write to, you are being very specific in terms of the resources that you are choosing. And so when we talked to Dorian Smiley, this was back in episode 123, we talked to him about APIs and the evolution of serverless. And I, I really liked what he had to say about essentially writing cloud formation. You know, serverless in reality is AWS specific. Like it's not, it hasn't yet delivered on the abstraction between all of, it's not multi-cloud and it's not edge. It's really about AWS. And you still have to glue together a whole bunch of things to make an architecture, right? So like, I still need to glue together my lambdas. I still need to write cloud formation for a lot of things because not everything is written into a, a like a um, an open source component that abstracts away that complexity. So I'm still writing a whole bunch of AWS control plane specific stuff, mm-hmm. right? And along with a whole bunch of other things that I may compose incorrectly, that I may set security inappropriately around. Like we can get into arguments about whether um, resource level permissions are appropriate, or you should be using something like STS always, and you should never assign like resource level permissions to anything in AWS. Like we can argue about that all day, but but the point is is that there is a lot of work that goes into that. I mean, we're spending more time doing that than we are writing the code. I could write a function in like thirty seconds, you know? like right. especially if you have a generator sitting on top of it, you know. But then I spend three days troubleshooting why it doesn't work when I deploy it to AWS, right? So like, and that's even if you're using the serverless framework and and good abstraction tools. And it's still not multi-cloud, right? So, but if I were to think of like, what is the perfect way I could abstract that away? Well, one of them is an API. And especially if you think of something like Fauna, right? Like where you have this distributed database, it's amazing, it does what I want it to do. Or something like dgraph where, you know, if I want GraphQL and an actual graph database, mm-hmm. who, who would have thought that would be a right. thing, right? Of course it's a thing, right? Like, but like, I don't need to worry about how they deploy their infrastructure and they could actually solve the multi-cloud problem and I would never know it. I can write my code once and I have the abstraction built in. I'm just making an API call, right? Like I don't, and I don't need to spend any time writing infrastructure as code. And I could actually build an app on Versal and be up and running in a global edge compute network in an hour, you know, without one line of AWS control plane code, which I would love. That's, that's sort of like my guiding light. If I can write an app without any AWS control plane specific code, I've achieved something important, you know? Um, and, and I think this is something AWS has got to wake up to, like, like the fact that there's this opportunity cost that's racking up in their balance sheet right now, and they don't seem to understand it, but like people are there, I don't think they're going to suffer that much because like the people building these services are often the abstraction layers built on top of AWS. That's to them, that's a win. You know, they're still going to get the business. Right. What I think they need to pay attention to is that these services that no one is going to use because they're too complicated to deal with their garbage control plane are going to be like this albatross around their neck or this like weight sinking them down because they can't just spin those things off tomorrow. You know, there are a lot of people that depend on those things, but they're going to wake up one day and realize that like companies that are solely dedicated to solving those problems deliver a better developer experience and a better service than their five person team that like spends a lot of time listening to businesses, but never spent one day talking to the developer that uses it, you know? So like, that's why I think the API economy is going to leapfrog serverless. It's the developer stupid. <laughs> like, <laughs> the de- let, if you ignore developer experience, you will fail. Like 100%, I don't care what you do. Eventually, you're going to fail. Someone will come along and, and crush you. Um, so but that's why I think it will leapfrog is just that you're able to offer this incredible developer experience and accelerate the outcome like by an order of magnitude. <laughs> you know, it's like it's, it's mind blowing, right? And, and the people working on it are amazing. All the people working in this space of the API economy are just like me. They've had similar experiences. They thought of this years ago and, and they want to enable a good developer experience. And so to me, that says they're going to win, you know, at least in my mind. I mean, a lot of good things said there, but man, the developer experience and the fact that developers are the practitioners every day working with these tools. And as Dorian says, he calls it, it's the developer stupid, um, which is a play on words. It's the economy stupid, I believe, is the play on words. But if you, he says, if you ignore developer experience, you will fail 100%. I don't want to speak too far into the future of how this dovetails beautifully into our next episode. So Jeremy, I want to stop here to ask if you have anything that you'd like to reflect on before I'm like, oh my gosh, guess what's next? Yeah, well, I I think that 
the the thing that Dorian said, there was something that I I couldn't I, I couldn't quite articulate well myself. And when he said this, I was like, that's exactly right. That's that is what I'm trying to say is that people when you write cloud formation or you use the serverless framework or even when you use, you know, SAM or Terraform or some of these other things, you are writing AWS control plane specific code. And that is the crux of it right there. And so from a true multi-cloud standpoint, as long as, even though, you know, Terraform abstracts some of the stuff away, like even if you're using the CDK, you're saying, I need a Lambda function, spin up a Lambda function, connect it to an API gateway with these configurations and so forth. And you just spend a lot of time very much so focused on the primitives that you need in order to stitch these things together. So perhaps you want to introduce the next segment where some people have been thinking about ways in which this could be more generic, maybe. Yeah, I almost forgot that we had teed up that episode with Dorian around, you know, multi-cloud and what that means. And it's, it's using different providers. It's not necessarily checking your Twitter feed with like four different clouds because I got so excited about the end of that clip, right, where he's like, it's a developer experience. And so we've had some incredible guests, or I would say most of our guests are de developers generally, um, or have been in the past. And this specific guest, I remember you and I being very giddy to talk to. He is no longer, but was at the time when we talked to him, the head of developer experience at Temporal. And so it's episode number 124, self-provisioning runtimes with Sean Swix-Wang. And we were talking to Sean around developer experience in general how to make systems that developers can understand and move through and work with without needing to be like extra Experts. fluent. Yeah, extra right. fluent in every single nuanced, like new language that or like special bobble or knickknack. <laughs> I, I know I'm using very technical, technical language terms. when I say bobble, Correct. bobble and Correct. Like I need to deploy like two knickknacks and a paddywhack. <laughs> Um, to, uh, yeah. But sometimes that's what it looks like, right? When you're like, you're like working with a new product or provider right. and you're like, oh, they named their knickknack knickknack and this one's called a whatchamacallit, but they do the same thing. And anyway, so I'll no, stop totally just saying, totally <laughs> I'll just stop saying random words, but we, I think you and I both really love, loved and continue to love how Sean Wang is all about empowering the developer to get their work done through simplicity. Right. And the term that he uses is self-provisioning runtimes. And so we asked him to explain exactly what what he meant by that. I thought he said knickknack. He did. Oh, maybe he did call it knickknacks. <laughs> Perfect. What if your system, the system, whatever system that you're running in, uh, understood your program enough that it was able to provision its own resources to run that program? And, and so right now, we're very used to provisioning resources and then running the program. And then whenever, like the whole concept of DevOps is essentially like, okay, program ran out of resources. So we need to like spin up more resources or fix the resources or whatever. But like, why why don't you just like read your program that you're, you're freaking running and just figure it out? Like, I don't know, like <laughs> you tell me. Um, and so like, obviously that's abstracting over a lot of complexity, but like that's the end goal, right? Like that, that that's where this all ends, ends up. Um, and so, ultimately like this blog post came from a number of pain points so again i was still working in aws at the time and the new hotness is aws cdk um, and and pulumi as well like infrastructure as code uh, literally as code not as like exactly but actually as as uh, as code that you can program and and reuse um, so all that good stuff about software engineering practices applies to cdk and pulumi as well um, but I was like, okay, but yeah, like, this is great, but also like they're like, we're just building up a whole bunch of stuff just to compile down to cloud formation or whatever. And then on the other side, we're still reading in a bunch of config values and then carrying on with the, with the actual bit program logic. Why don't we like, where is, who's like merging the two? Like the, this is obviously the end game, right? So, um, I have this graphic here of like these like abstract little blocks, um, because I've been looking at language um, theory, um, sort of 
design or, or it's um, I, I, I think the formal term for this is PLT programming language theory mm-hmm. and I have some friends in that field and I always listen to them but they keep talking about types they're like oh yeah if we had a better type system the world would be much a much better place and I'm like sure right like yeah, the stronger type system monads and all that good stuff but like the other the, one of the main advances in programming language just that has still not been beaten is just programming languages that took care of memory uh, allocation for you, right? Mm-hmm. Like had automatic garbage collection, or just they just got rid of the concept of having to like uh, manually manage uh, memory registers, and that's a huge uh, step step advance. But that only happened because we had just assumed that the runtime would take care of it. And yes, it's not perfect. Yes, you have performance trade offs, and yes, sometimes you ha- you have to opt out of it and go down to a lower level language. But ninety percent of developers don't need that. And so similarly, 90% of people who work with cloud don't need to know the underlying implementation details of like what kind of storage and what bucket to, to put where. Just figure it out for me and like let me just work on the app. So that, that's where I'm at. Like I, I want programming languages to advance to the point where they can just assume the runtime to do it. And I want infrastructure provisioning to advance to the point where they can read programming, the programming languages and figure out um, what, they, what they're supposed to provide. Yeah. So speaking about words that don't mean anything, monads. He mentioned monads. No, actually, that does mean something. <laughs> but no, this is the this is this is like the exact you know theory behind what I've been working on for the last whatever it's been eighteen months or something like that. You know, this idea that whether you call it self provisioning runtimes or you call it like a cloud compiler or you call it infrastructure from code, which is what we call it. Essentially, that is this very simple idea that we are writing things twice. We're essentially saying we want this program to do these things. And then we're writing to say, and here are all of the magical pieces of the cloud that we need to assemble in order to make it work. And the problem is, is that you're essentially, you know, putting all kinds of hints in your code anyways, to know what it needs to do. And it used to be that we could just upload a file that had our whole programming instructions in there onto one server. And then maybe there's the complexity of there being a database, but the server itself had the web server built in, Apache built in, maybe even had caching built in and some of these other things. You get the distributed systems, it gets much more complex and more complicated. And rather than us absorbing that complexity into the model we were used to, we completely changed it and made it very, very difficult now, I think, for people to build distributed or for them to build modern applications. Yeah, I think there's something special that he says at the end of that clip, right, where he's talking about implementation details and the underlying implementation details. Mm. And he's like, listen, take that away from me, most likely, for the modern app that I want to build. Like, there are, of course time and space and place for everything where it makes sense where you need to know the details or you want to know them or maybe you've done the trade-off analysis and for some reason you wanted to you want to know all these details but for the most part what he's saying here right is like you don't need to know the kind of storage and what bucket to put where like right now you want to just work on the app so when i can allow you to do that when we can build something that allows you to do that to reduce the number of times that you do things twice that work is redundant that you didn't even need to know that in the first place, then that is a step and advancement in the right direction. Right. And and no, I think that's 100% correct. And I think the figure he mentions, again, that, that, you know, it's just anecdotal, but 90% of developers don't need that. I, I think I think it's higher than that. I think there are probably 99% of developers who are building a lot of these apps don't need to go in and turn knobs. I mean, this is something that Lambda, I think, did brilliantly. Uh, you know, we had this conversation or, uh, long, long ago. I had this conversation with Tim Wagner and with uh, Jay Nair. And actually, I think even uh, Holly Mesrobian when we were talking about Lambda and sort of the lack of control that it gives you, whereas like there was one knob. It was like, how much power <laughs> do you want? Do you want? And it was in terms of memory, but that memory would then tie to CPU and some of these other things. But that's one of those things where it's like sometimes people just feel like, I mean, it's almost like a placebo, right? Like if I can just turn it a little bit, like I'm going to hit that elevator close button because it makes me feel good, makes me feel like I'm in control, but that elevator door is going to close when it wants to close, right? And that's the same thing I think that you get with something like Lambda and that memory thing. Now, it certainly does do something and it gives you that little bit of control, but it controls a lot of things that it's optimizing for you behind the scenes. And that is one of those things where it's like, as a developer, it's really great to use something like the serverless framework and say, okay, I want a Lambda fun- or I want a function and I want it to run this handler code and I want it to respond to an API at a slash 
user's endpoint, right? And that'll do some of the work for you. It'll deploy an API gateway. It'll map the Lambda function. It'll wrap the Lambda function in a zip file. It'll upload it to an S3 bucket. Like it does all these things for you behind the scenes, but you're still basically saying, I still have to define the fact that I want this code to run when this happens. And then in the code itself, you're saying, well, when this is triggered, then do this and blah, 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 whatever. So there's just a whole bunch of redundancy in there. And I think that most people don't even need that. And the cloud should be smart enough in order to know like, oh, you wrote an API script or a script that runs an API or a schedule or an event fires off, whatever. It should be able to wire it for you. It should be able to do those IAM roles for you. It should be able to do all of that. Again, the vast majority of developers, like vast, vast majority of developers, they just don't need to know that stuff. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of this. Um, I think it was a 90% invisible podcast and they were talking about this is almost going to sound very tangential but they were talking about the design of a nuclear reactor it might have been three mile island you might not want to abstract that away you probably want to get down yeah, to the machine no, you, code on something no like but that. what they're talking about what they were talking about is they were talking about failures in in design mm. and how when the all of the different control panels were designed differently and like some and some control panels like red meant like it's operating and in other control panels, red meant there's a problem, there's an alarm going off. And so it, they were talking about the idea of design and all the knobs and the more knobs you put. And when you put someone in an obviously pressurized situation, it was not easy to parse what meant what where. And basically, I mean, there's all sorts of takeaways from this episode, but they do talk about like there is something about giving people less knobs in order to do their job better. Right. So that they can focus on the actual part of the job and also then hopefully designing those knobs that you do have in a much more cohesive, clarifying way. But I, I don't know the way that we're talking about, like simplifying things, right? It's like if you are going to have knobs, make them clear. And a lot of times maybe ask yourself, do I need to have this knob? Right. Well, and, and this is not a psychology podcast, but if you uh, if you've ever heard of decision fatigue. It is something that is very, very real. You know, you you have a limited amount of decisions in you every day. This might be pseudoscience. So, you know, uh, don't necessarily listen to me. Go look this up yourself. But from what I've read is that decision fatigue is a very real thing where you have a limited number of decisions that you can essentially make every day, which is why a lot of people, when they get home from work and they're tired and they had a busy day, like they'll overeat or they won't eat healthy or whatever it is because they're just at a point where their their mind is like, I can't make any more good decisions. Decision. So I'm just going to make, I'm just going to choose the default or whatever it is. And I think that that does translate to some of these things as well. It's like, if you are constantly making, if you have to make 50 decisions in order to get an API endpoint up and running with a couple of simple things, well, what do you think you're going to leave out? Or what are the decisions you're going to skip? Security, right? Maybe redundancy, maybe, you know, uh, other types of uh, other types of failover or resiliency or things like there's just going to be too many things that you have to think about beyond all the things you already have to think about, that those things are going to be lower priority, which is probably why security, you know, gets left out of the conversation so much. Right. Or you think about the decision and for and you end up saying like, ah, that's tomorrow's problem. Yes. I say that to myself all the time. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Me too. You're like, okay, well, we don't have to solve that right now. So I'll just decide to decide this tomorrow. But like like we talked with Mayor Baron Megan, uh, don't decide to do security tomorrow. Hope um, that, hope so that you can do it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Lumigo. Gain full visibility into Lambda invocation flows quickly with Lumigo, the cloud monitoring and troubleshooting platform that helps developers like you see the whole story end to end. Resolve critical issues in serverless and distributed environments, giving you better insights into your Lambda's mind. Start free today at Lumigo.io. So we've been talking, obviously, going like further and further down into, you know, technical ways of building, technical ways of evaluating what to build, what might be the future of serverless or where we could go and just programming in general. But there's also this other side that we love to talk about with our guests, which is, you know, development culture, Mm -hmm. growth and learning and advocacy of that learning and expertise across mediums, across people starting from as, you know, new engineers all the way up to senior engineers and staff engineers. So let's talk a little bit about some of our favorite like cultural moments where sure. we've learned something from our guests. Yeah. And I think, you know, to to sort of tie a lot of this together, 
just going back to the idea of decisions you have to make, right? One of the things about having a hundred decisions to make and and having all these primitives you have to worry about and having all the expertise that you probably need in order to put all this stuff together, that takes a lot of learning. And it also takes, in most cases, a lot of teamwork and environments that promote growth and understanding and a culture of learning and just acceptance and things like that. So in order for you to be able to go through this process of learning something as complex as cloud computing, I think you need to put yourself in an environment where you have mentors, where you have other people that are willing to help you, and certainly where you're in a, in a position to ask questions. And they say there are no dumb questions, but people, depending on the culture, do get criticized for it. And it's hard for everybody in order to, you know, especially if you're a junior or you're not sure, like to swallow your pride and be like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what those, I don't know what those uh, acronyms mean, or I don't understand how this particular thing works. That's really hard, I think, for anybody. But I think it's particularly hard for women and for people of color and any underrepresented group that goes into tech because we just know that tech has a stigma, right? It's just, it's not kind. Uh, it's not welcoming uh, for the longest time, especially through the dot-com era and the early 2000s. There was a lot of this whole bro culture thing, whatever. And it's changing, I think, I hope, right? We hear a lot of good stories about how it's changing. But these are discussions and conversations and just experiences, I think, that need to be talked about and need to be shared so that if you're sitting there, you know, again, as a white male that got the job, didn't have to worry about negotiating salaries and everybody just, you know, sort of takes for granted the fact that, well, you know, maybe I have a CS degree, so good to go. But if you're a woman, you know, it's like, well, yes, I have a CS degree. Oh, I got my master's degree. And you have to do more, I think, to prove some of these things. And this is very real and this is happening. And so we had Christy Peralt um, on the show. We had a really good conversation with her because she wrote an article about her experience as a woman in tech. And then I think we had a, a pretty, uh, I think we had a pretty uh, good exchange here that showed that these conversations, yes, are hard and they're difficult to have sometimes, but you can also have them with a little bit of levity in them maybe. These things are not easy, like they're definitely difficult. Um, and I will even say like, I, I have trouble with some of those things myself too. Absolutely. Like I, the one that really resonates with me that stands out a lot that I catch myself with constantly is the you guys statement, um, kind of using that kind of language because it's just so ingrained in every day and you use it to like group things. And I'm trying to be more conscious about catching myself when I say that. Um, which is kind of funny because here I am writing this this whole article about it. And I'm like, well, I kind of got to learn from myself a little bit here, too. Um, so that's like kind of one example for that, like water cooler talk, you know, um, educating yourself so you can educate others. That one's probably one of my favorite sections, because I think that it highlights that we're all still learning this. You know, like I just said, like we're all still trying to figure this out together and let's do it as a collective. I mean, even approach it like you do any sort of new tech that you're learning and stuff like put out what you're learning and put out what you're ignorant about um, so that you can like learn from others and, and kind of share experiences. Uh, and then, you know, kind of some of the things for like ask women, you know, what they need. Like I'm a pretty loud person. I'm not afraid to step up and, and say stuff, but that's not everybody. Um, so like some people might need more help, um, you know, being highlighted in meetings or for presentations and things like they might appreciate being reached out to more. Um, others just don't like doing that kind of stuff. So maybe highlighting them in a meeting just makes them more nervous and they don't like it. Um, so that's what it kind of comes up to with um just asking what folks need individually, because we're all individuals at the end of the day and everybody needs something different and is looking for help in different areas. I find the you guys thing is uh, everywhere you go uh, on TV. You know, I, I mean, I'm from the Northeast, so um, in uh, Northeast United States, and you guys is just something that everybody uses. I mean, women use it, men, it's everywhere. And then you are on tech Twitter and, you know, there's this, this very much so this push to, um, uh, to sort of move away from it, which I think is, is amazing. Um, and I, I just find though, that it's like, it, it's like fighting an uphill battle and we, I mean, we need to change it, but at the same time, like, I mean, even my, even my daughters, I mean, we don't use the term usually in our own household, but like my daughters hear from friends and things like that. And it's just, it's so pervasive. And, and I'm just curious, um, 
a, a thought on this because you have so many people that push back. They're like, oh, you guys, it's meant to be, uh, you know, gender neutral. Like, it's not really that big of a deal or whatever. But I think to some people, it is a really big deal. And, and, it, and it doesn't feel like you're including them. Um, but I'm curious your thoughts on the, the separation between workplace and um, sort of casual, you know, uh, or I guess recreational, that's probably not the right word. But like, that's the thing where I find the language you choose um, to, or the language you choose when you're in a professional environment and you're communicating with people, even on Twitter as, as part of a you know professional uh, profile or whatever, um, and communicating on LinkedIn and, and within Slack and within company, things like that. Um, you know, I think people kind of get confused in terms of the language we use outside and the language we use professionally. Um, and I think there's a line there, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. Uh, so kind of funny, you know, one of the things that I love about my company is that you're really encouraged to, to bring your whole self to work. And I feel like I can do that. You know, I feel like there's, I have such a relationship with my colleagues that it's very much like that. I mean, I put a, a daily fun fact in our channel every day um, to kind of get conversations going and stuff. So um, I do think like maybe that line is becoming less and less clear as we go on, especially because that work and personal isn't as separate anymore with how much remote work there has been. Um, like you're kind of, you know, screen sharing or video sharing in your house now. Um, you're, kind of ingrained a little bit more in each other's lives, which is why I think it's maybe even more important to pay attention to some of the language and some of the ways that we're speaking to people um, and how we're, we're embracing differences and diversity across the board. Um, I do think in, in certain, you know, professional situations, of course, like, you know, formal presentations and some of those things, like, yeah, you do want to be probably a lot more careful with those things. Uh, and I'll say I'm one of the people that it, I'm not super offended by the you guys thing. Um, I'm happy if you want to say that or use that, but I do know that other people aren't. So that's where the communication kind of really comes into play. Um, and like I said, I'm not somebody who's afraid to kind of speak up and, and ask or if something's bothering me, I'll, I'll say it. And then that's how we can kind of learn from each other. Um, but I tend to really treat my, my work life and my my personal or personal dev life um, pretty, pretty similar, really, um, just because of that whole idea of bringing my whole self to work and, and being my whole self where, wherever I am. And I'm lucky that I've been able to be supported in that and that I have a safe space to do that. I would, I, I want to add here too, um, when it comes to like gender neutrality about that term, I certainly know that that, or like using that phrase, right? I certainly, I get it. I get it. And I understand that it's like, well, that's just like, you know, a part of speech. It's like a, a benign, if you will. Mm -hmm. However, actionably to talk about like a, a small action one can take, anyone who's, uh, whenever you say you guys to a room of like mixed gender um folks just replace guys with ladies and watch what happens it is very strange i will I'll, I'll do this i'll walk into a room of mixed a mixed group and i'll say what's up ladies and it's weird and people will be like I that's don't, awesome they're like i, I don't get that. i don't get it and you're <laughs> like well then try to explain to me that guys is gender neutral if you could just replace and say no i'm just using it in a gender neutral way and people are like, that's clearly not gender neutral. You just called us all ladies. And you're like, I mean, that's it. So I do think that it's, um, and I don't mean that to be like poking the bear, but just for all of us to just like question our own, what do we mean when we say neutrality? And is it really, well, what can you swap out in your language to see if it really feels neutral with the opposing word, right? Boy, girl, whatever that binary is. Yeah. Um, and so- I do. And, and oftentimes it's funny, right? It can be very light and can be very lighthearted. But I, I think it's it's been a really helpful, almost like teaching moment for everyone to say like, hey, that actually does feel strange. And then it's like, OK, how do we interrogate that? And I think it feels strange because tech, that actually shows you that like, hey, guys, is not gender neutral. If you could say, hey, gals and people feel confused. So I think you did poke the bear a little bit there, but in a good way, because, again, that honestly, we played a little bit more of that clip to sort of hear the whole interaction back and forth, because I think it was important where where you where you took that, where again, that's just one of those things where it's like, if somebody came into a room and said, hey, gals, or hey, ladies, or whatever, to a mixed room, it would feel really weird. And, and as a, an aside to this, again, another way, just, I have two daughters, but my, my youngest daughter, 
randomly started just calling everybody girl. So she's like, hey, girl, right? And so she'll say it to me. So now we just have this thing where that's what we do. We just call it. We're like, hey, girl, hey, girl, like just whatever. And it's, you know, and again, it's fun. It's lighthearted. It's within a family and it's whatever. Clearly, that's not going to work in a uh, in a business environment. But it's the kind of thing where it just, it, again, it reiterates. It helps me too. It reiterates that thing where it's sort of like, yeah, that is a, uh, that is something that we we probably take for granted. Uh, granted, that that idea of uh, gender neutrality, even in the term, you know, hey guys. Yeah, I think. I mean, the goal here, or one of the goals, I think there are many goals with this this idea of interrogating the culture in ways that we can. And Christy Perrault had written, just so anyone who wants to look for it on her medium, it's called "How to Build with How to Support Women in Tech," and. She outlines these four different, you know, ways that you can. And this was us looking at one of the ways. Uh, and this was sort of the conversation that took place after one of the ways of how to support women in tech. And I do think just the idea, though, of, of interrogating our own assumptions and where we think things seem normal to us, where it has been normalized, if we can interrogate those, right, and we can start to say, like, hey, how do we build women up and support women in tech? That is just an exercise toward also then asking ourselves, not just how do we build women up and support women in tech, how do we support minorities in tech, LGBTQ plus in tech? How do we support gender non-binary? How do we support whatever it is? Like if, if it's your sexual orientation, your religion, your identification as like a certain gendered or non-gendered person. But unless we start to interrogate those in any of these forums, we're not going to interrogate any of them. So how do we like start taking steps to make sure that we're asking ourselves those questions at the very beginning when we're creating a culture or a space. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that's the, that's the big thing with this idea of starting to use different language like that or starting to just be conscious of the language that we use to be more inclusive. Because we, again, diversity is one of those things where I just, I don't think if, if you've never experienced it, if you've never had the moment where you're like, wow, this person thinks differently than I do, right? And, 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 and however they think, maybe that represents a small part of the population. Maybe it represents a huge part of the population, right? And to, to hear somebody else frame something differently or articulate something differently, that is such a learning opportunity. And to have that diversity around you is, you know, is a, a 10X, is 100X as a team to do that. So, the only way you can build a group of diverse people is by appreciating and accepting and welcoming and and doing whatever you can to make that diverse workplace or that diverse culture uh, a safe space for everybody to be in. So yeah, I totally agree. This is this is something where just there's a lot more work to be done here. I feel like we've made a lot of progress in the last few years. Still a long way to go. So you also mentioned this idea of like being a safe space or comfortable and welcoming for everybody. And that includes junior people. That includes, you know, senior people that maybe don't know. We talked about this idea of asking questions or being able to ask questions. But we had a guest that maybe um, helped clarify this a little bit. We certainly we did. Uh, Eric Johnson in episode 125, we talked all about a lot of great things, including mostly Dr. Pepper and... Right. Um, <laughs> how all of us are extremely long-winded and we were at time about six different times within the episode. But in this particular moment in the episode, right, Eric is basically saying, hey, it took me a while, but I finally was just like, hey, everyone, I, even though I'm supposed to be a, you know, a senior developer advocate, principal developer advocate, I don't know what this acronym means. I don't know what we're supposed to be building here with these words. I don't know what problem we're trying to solve because there are like vocabulary that's used. Maybe we're introducing features I haven't worked with. I don't know. Like, ultimately, the takeaway here was that he had to say, like, how do I end up being able to be okay with saying I don't know? And then we talked about how in certain ways, you know, power dynamics might be such that someone who is senior in their role, when they say I don't know, it's seen as a source of like humility and strength. But when someone is junior in their role, it can feel really scary because they already feel junior. And then they feel like they are going to be seen as junior because they're saying I don't know. So we're talking about this, like, how do you make a space where it's a learning environment where everyone is growing and learning? And it's always seen as a strength, not only to ask the question, but to answer the question responsibly and respectfully and basically with, you know, a level of grace where it's like, hey, I also did not know. And let's explore this together. 
There's no way you know everything. And so I would sit in meetings and just quietly, you know, they would do you know, the, the QRSW 99 or 42, whatever. And, you know, you, you, you all been in those meetings. It's like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> Finally, just one day, I literally said, you know what? I'm asking the question. I don't know what that means. I raised my hand, you know, virtually. I don't know what that means. And it was really funny because over 50% of the room goes, yeah, I don't know what that means either. I'm so glad you asked. I don't know. So I think the first thing I've learned is, you don't have to know everything, and you'd be surprised. Somebody, if they're talking about it, somebody knows. But you don't, you don't get better if you don't ask the questions. I think, I think it's really critical that if you don't know, ask. If you get fired for that, there's something some, wrong with that's the culture. not your yeah. fault. That's somebody right. else's fault. Yeah, there, there's a problem there because because the only way we learn is by asking. You, my dad was a teacher; he was a high school teacher, and. Um, his, his thing was always, you know, I, I, we always say there's no question too dumb, but he really meant that. If you don't know, only way to learn is to ask the question. Uh, I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again. If you're the smartest person in the room, you need to change rooms. I, I want to be in the room where I know the least. Uh, case in point, and here's a story, Jeremy. I, I, you know, I'm a drummer. We talked about it. Uh, turns out, you know, I was playing at a community college. I was the best drummer they had. And I really thought that was something. And then I transferred over to a school of music in Phoenix, Arizona. It turns out I'm, I'm not that good. I'm really good for one finger. I'm really average in life, you know. And so uh, the worst drummer there ate my lunch. But I learned more in my time there with those drummers being better than me than I ever did being the best. Because if you're always teaching, you're never learning, right? And so I'm just full of cliches, aren't I? But uh, it, it's, how many cliches can I fit in? Uh, but, but, but that's one of, the, one of the things I learned. You have to ask the questions. Don't be embarrassed. About it. And, and what I found is, it, at least in my experience, and you, you hear people, well, AWS is this, or Amazon is this, or Oracle is this, or GC, you know, whatever. They classify companies based on people. I guess this would be the second lesson. Based on experiences with people. But the reality of a company it is it's a group of people. And yes, while we have policies in place and things like that, some people are better managers than others, you know? And so, so they base all story off a bad manager, all right. story off a good manager. My experience has been very gracious. I mean, there's an expectation. You work hard. You know, we, we work hard, play hard. But the, there's a gracious allowance of, oh, you don't know? Let's teach you. Now, if you keep saying, I don't know what that means to the same thing every time, probably right. the problem might be you and, <laughs> and not them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, those, those are some of the things uh, that I've learned. Um, I'll stop there unless you have other questions, but those are some key things. I want to follow up on that because so in my time at AWS, that was also one of my key learnings. Like if you don't know, don't be afraid to ask because like, you know, someone says, what do you say? QR, QR, 21219. And all of a sudden someone goes wrong. They're like, blue 42. I thought you told me a button hook. And you're like very confused. Um, Was there a niner? Yeah, niner, niner. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, when I first entered AWS, not, I mean, everyone has different levels and stuff like that, but L5. So like lower quote air quote lower level in terms of like the hierarchy of an organizational structure and i would be in meetings you know with vps of like people who are making very large organizational business decisions and in something that at one point you know i was reading a doc and then i you know had all my red pen circles like don't know what this means not quite sure how this fits together And finally, I got to the same point you did where you're like, I'm just going to ask. And something that was interesting is when I asked afterwards, the VP stayed and said, I also didn't know um, (laughs) what that meant. And I was talking about it. And I was like, and I was like, you know, I was a little worried to ask that question. And he and he said the same thing. Right. Don't be afraid to ask. And I and then we talked about it. And I was like, I think something that happens. Right. Is someone who is, let's say, quote, air quote, lower on the level hierarchy is more afraid to ask because mm-hmm. they feel like they need to rise up since everyone around, they don't want to be that person that's like, oh, I'm at a low level and clearly I'm at a low level because clearly I deserve to be at this low level because I don't understand. And so we talked about what does that mean for that person at the higher level to yeah. pre- like, how do you create, and now that you're a principal and have been a principal developer advocate, are there any tactics or ways where you're like, hey, how do we create this space so that people, like it seems it's seen as humble when someone at a high mm-hmm. level asks uh, what could be a scary, you should know this question, right? Because right. they're like, hey, 
they're like, hey, clearly, like I'm at a high level, but this doesn't make sense to me. Can you explain it? Versus it feeling like a different burden of proof on someone who's at a different yeah. level. So do you have any ways where you're where you're like, hey, when I'm in a room, even if I know the answer, I ask the question to open up that safe space or any other like tactics or ways that you think that space can be created so that people can feel like they can ask those questions. Yeah, and I think you just hit on it. I, we do this in service office hours. Uh, we do service office hours on, on Tuesdays. And one of my jobs, I feel, as the host, but it's the same in rooms and private rooms as well, is I ask the question. I know the answer sometimes, not always. Um, but I, I ask the question that I don't think is stuck. You can, you can kind of see the eyes, uh, you know, and stuff like that. And, and that's one of the things I really try hard to do is pay attention to the room. Because you can often tell when people are, are off the tracks, right? Uh, they're, they're just in there kind of, you know, doe-eyed, shaking their heads. Yes, 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 I get it. I understand. But do you? And so I, I really try to try to open that up and ask the questions. The other thing, and, and this was interesting, Chris Munz and I had this conversation when, when I started there. He said, what are some things you would change? And one of my frustrations was, was documentation, uh, you know, and, and that's, AWS is not alone in that. Documentation's hard. But a lot of times we make assumptions, and this is this is a safe space in, internally. We make assumptions. Go, I'm sure you know this, so I'm just going to skip right over and tell you to do this with this with this in the documentation. And and I spent half my life going, I, I don't know that. I, I don't understand who made the leap from here to here. And so when I write docs or when I do explanations, either I'm speaking publicly and internally, is I try to connect every dot. And, and sometimes it's too much. I, I'm a talker. Sometimes it's, it's overkill. And I'll say, look, if, if I'm telling you something you already know, go ahead and interrupt me. That's fine. But I'm going to say this and, and then you can, you know, you can, you, you might correct me. But those kinds of things to, to not make the assumption. I think a lot of times we assume we're all in the same room. We're all at the same level. And, and that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, so much in there. Also, uh, amazingly fun to talk to <laughs> Eric Johnson. But yeah, I, he pointed out a lot, a, a lot of really good points. I mean, this idea of just asking questions because you're never going to learn if you if you don't. The point he mentioned here of you know being the worst drummer, you can be the best at something if you're the smartest person in the room. Right, you've got to change rooms. I love that uh, one of the of the you know be thirty uh, cliches that he threw in there, but good good ones, right? You know, uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean I, those all make sense to me, and that that is something that I think is really really important. And if your culture doesn't support asking questions, then that is a really really bad culture to be in. Yeah, I fully agree, and. I, I just absolutely love this reminder that asking questions should be seen as a fountain or a wealth of empowering everyone in the room, not just the question asker. In communities, right, right we have this idea of the, some people call them observers. At one point, they were called lurkers. I actually asked this in the Uncommon community, Common Rooms community recently. What would you call someone who, quote unquote, passively interacts in a community, so they're not necessarily visibly participating. But that doesn't mean they're not logging in, reading other people's questions and answers. And right now, the leading number of votes is for quiet learner. And I do think that that's actively happening in a lot of rooms where if someone is asking that question, everyone is benefiting from hearing the answer. It's not just an A to B conversation. When that's happening in public, that question and that answer is empowering everyone else in the room as well. And I think that's something that we need to hold on to and remind ourselves that even when it feels scary to ask that question, that you're not out only asking it for yourself, you're likely asking it for a lot of people in the room. Right, right. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, a lot of what we've just talked about, especially with these last two clips, are very much so about culture, right? It all comes back to culture. Even Merritt Baer was talking about culture, right? So culture, 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 what it is you do, how you embrace people, the processes you put in place to make sure that, you know, things get resolved or whatever it is. And one of my favorite episodes, and this is because I love listening to her talk about the things she talks about. I love reading all the blog posts she writes. She's so honest about this stuff. But Charity Majors, so good in terms of, of the, the stuff that she, that she writes. And we talked to her, uh, episode 118. And we call it deploying on Fridays because if you search for like deploying on Fridays, I think charity majors comes up like as like the number one thing. And there's so many people that tell you don't deploy on Fridays. You don't want to deploy on Fridays because you don't want, you know, your engineers to have to spend their Friday night debugging this. But we asked her about this and wanted her to clarify her stance on deploying on Fridays. Um, and uh, 
it goes beyond just having good CI/CD systems. It very much so has to do with engineering culture and how you how you feel and value the engineers you have working for you. And, and this is some place where I think people like to paint me as a radical and just like a fire breather or something. I'm not like I am from ops. I am I am a pragmatist at heart. Um, I am not trying to like you know draw a line in the sand. And be like if you don't do this, you you are terrible. You know. Um, my point is just that, you know, if you are unable to deploy for a solid 20% of your week, that's not great. That's not something to aspire to. It's, it's, it's not, you know, and some people will be like, well, this is a sign of how much I value my people and, and their weekends and everything. And I'm like, no, it's not. If you really valued their time that, that much, you wouldn't want them to only be protected from this on, on Fridays. You, you know, people get paged overnight all week long. If you really care about your people, you will fix this problem so that deploys are safe, reliable, so easy, easy to flip back and refer, easy for engineers to deploy their own shit. It should be a nothing burger, right? It should be like, it's, it's like the heartbeat of your system. It's, and heartbeat should be regular, predictable, trivial, like nothing, right? Small diffs, one engineer at a time. They should go out just like constantly all day long. Um, and if if you've done these things, it will make absolutely no sense to you to block off Fridays, right? And, you know, there, there are some places where, you know, some people have extreme situations. Some people... La, la, la. I don't know everyone's specific situations. And there are some situations that, you know, I'm like, okay, that's valid. But for the most part, I hear a lot of excuses. <laughs> right. For the most part, I hear a lot of shit that makes me see that they just haven't done the work. <laughs> right. If it takes them an hour or two to get their code out, I'm pretty sure they're batching together a whole bunch of engineers to code at once, which is like, there are like five things wrong with this. <laughs> you know, like if, if it takes you that long to get shit out, like the amount of time it takes you to get a single line of code out into production is extremely telling. Like, can you do that in 15 minutes or less? If so, like you can probably ship on Fridays, like no, no problems, right? Um, if you're doing auto deploys, you know, if you're, if, if you're, you know, it's just, it all kind of goes together. And I just don't like seeing it used as an excuse to not improve. You know, if you can't get there, I get that, you know, sometimes people are dealing with a lot of legacy shit or they've got external, you know, customers and requirements. I'm just saying you could probably get a lot closer than you are now and it will be nothing but benefit to your people. Like every step that you can get towards being able to auto deploy regularly will help people, will save time, will will make your engineers' lives more joyful. <laughs> like it's win, 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 win. And so I don't understand why people continue to just radically under underinvest in this area. This human does not mince their words and I love it. Uh, you Me highlighted too. a couple of specific parts that that even stand out from this already standout clip. Want to tell us about them? Yeah, I mean, the the biggest one for me is I just don't like seeing it used as an excuse not to improve. And that's one of those things where like, if you're an engineer and you're writing code uh, and it takes three days for that code to get into production, that is way too long. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I don't remember what I just said 20 minutes ago, never mind code I wrote three days ago. So uh, even if it's a couple of hours to get into production or to get into a point where it's starting to interact with the system in a way that is meaningful, that we can actually start to debug it if something goes wrong. Because that engineer, and this is, we talk about this through the whole entire episode. And this episode is great, by the way, one of my favorite episodes that we've had, because we talk about all those different things where we're like, you know, an engineer is the one, the faster the engineer can get that code into production, the faster they can debug it. And when it's fresh in their mind, that's the time when you want that to happen. And you have to test in production. This is another thing that Charity says all the time. You have to test in production with distributed systems because you cannot replicate the, the fragility of a, of, a, of a distributed system in the cloud with a, with a dev environment. You can't do that. You have to observe it. You have to see how data is flowing through, where things break, how quickly they break, how often they're failing, and so forth. And if the engineer who built that code or wrote that code can't see that almost instantaneously, 
then it's going to take forever to, to figure out. So I love this idea of just saying like, look, if you value your people, you're going to give them the process that they need to not only succeed and be, you know, and, and write good code and be able to validate that code, but you're going to give them that sense of uh, confidence that they know they can put something into a system that is going to be able to, to easily react or is going to be able to quickly roll back if there's an issue, as opposed to, again, waking them up, even if it's a Thursday night or whatever it is, to fix some bug because they just merged 20 diffs at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to work toward and end up delivering that win, 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 win. I think she used five wins in this win, 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 win situation. It's a win for it's the engineer as a human. It's a win for that team. It's a win for the company. Like if you're able to do this nimbly, you're able to deploy on Fridays and test in production. That's not just saving that one person's valuable time, effort, sanity. It's better for the business. It is. Right. Well, we probably could have split this episode into another one, but I'm not <laughs> sure how many uh, of these best of episodes we can do before people are like, just give me a new guest. Anyways, uh, we'll put in the show notes all of the episodes that we mentioned here. But uh, I, you know, again, amazing guests, so much fun uh, doing this with you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for for doing this with me as well, because we, I think we just, we've, we've gotten so many good quotes out of people, right? Like, it's just, I don't know if we're good at this or just people are are just you know People so willing to it. talk i mean the, the, yeah the guests are the guests are amazing but uh <laughs> this has been so much fun so hopefully we will be able to do many many more episodes together talk to more amazing guests um but uh we are out of time yeah thank you for this walk down memory lane and thanks to all the guests who allowed us to walk this memory lane and to our listeners if there is one in episode or part one or part two an episode that was your favorite or if you had a favorite episode that we didn't cover here let us know. We totally want to hear about it. Right. Or if there's a if there's a guest you really, really want to hear from, Ooh, you call. someone you want us to have on the show, we would we love talking to people. So uh, and we also uh, I think we like hearing the sound of our own voice a little bit too much, Rebecca. Maybe that's part of it. I like hearing the sound of yours, Jeremy. No, I like hearing the yeah, sound of well, your voice. Yeah, well, I think it's like if Eric, if we could have Eric Johnson on, if we added him as a third co-host, then guests wouldn't even get a word in edgewise. So, um, <laughs> but anyways, we'll see. I don't know. Maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll do the the Jeremy, Rebecca, Eric uh, hour or something like that. That would be, <laughs> that'd be fun. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks again to all our guests. Thank you, Rebecca, and to you, all the listeners. So we will, uh, we'll see you again next week. And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to all of our guests featured on this episode and to our sponsor, Lamigo. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 138. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sound to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter at Becca Odele and me at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.